Hello and welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and I'm the founder of This Is HCD and also CEO of This Is Doing, a live class design and innovation company providing training in the skills of service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers and much, much more. Now, you're in for a real treat in this episode. Let me tell you a little bit of a story though. In a previous life, I had dreams of becoming a musician. I know. Now, I was a singer-songwriter and had a band, and reflecting back now, it was some of the best experiences and times of my life. Now, I've played music from the age of four and started writing music from the age of 12, so for me, design and music were part of the same mindset. And it wasn't until earlier this year that I was out for dinner with a friend and mentioned how I see huge similarities between design and music that I realised that not everybody sees this. Now let me tell you, the musical mindset is something that designers can and should embrace more of. There are so many layers to this mindset, from creating music, being a team sport, needing rhythm and cadence and excitement, you need talent, but you also need the dedication and confidence to explore and embrace the unknown in the live format. Music is created in a studio, very much like a designer's studio, but it's how the songs and music perform in the live arena that they start to become a living and breathing things. Yeah, I hope you're starting to see some similarities with services here. Designing services and creating music are so similar. There's an obvious metaphor to lift Patrick Quattlebaum and Chris Rizd from the wonderful book of orchestrating, but there is so much more to it than that. Just creating a song from the moment of jamming in a studio or working alone is like creating an outline of a thing. And over time, it's iterated and iterated upon and often tested to get live feedback from people. See the similarities? And it's refined and refined until you go into the studio to record it and lay it down. Well, that was the process that worked for me up until 2006. In this episode, I connect with a former producer that I was lucky enough to work with way back in 2006 to 2008, Mr. Rafa Sardina, 60-time Grammy-nominated, 15-time winner. And he has a client list that looks like the most celebrated artists of the last 100 years. That include Michael Jackson, Lady Gaga, Dr. Dre, Beyonce, Stevie Wonder, Celine Dion, and everybody's favourite singer, Susan Boyle. Now we chat about how the craft of songwriting has evolved from the early 90s up into the present day, and what working what Michael Jackson looked like, as well as Prince, and how the industry validates songs. We chat about how technology disrupted and ultimately killed the large recording budgets that ultimately ran for months or years in some instances, and to where Rafa is currently now mid-pandemic, producing globally via live recording sessions in the top studios in the world. Let's get straight into this episode. Rafa Sardina, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you? Doing good. How are you doing? I'm not so bad. I'm doing okay. Like, you know, we've been chatting for half an hour here before we start recording everybody. Uh, I've known Rafa for a very long time. And in a previous life, I played in music and I was lucky enough to cross paths with Rafa and we worked together. Rafa as a producer and me as an artist and... In this episode, we're going to be speaking a little bit more around the interconnectedness between music creation and design. It's a great topic. And um, for people who don't know Rafa Sardina, Rafa Sardina is a 60-time Grammy-nominated um, producer and a 15-time award winner. Okay, I'm sure you never get sick of hearing that. But Rafa, let us start. Tell us a little bit about yourself um, and what you do. Well, uh 
my main focus in my career has been music, uh, mainly. I not only do music, I have other interests too, but um, my main focus has been uh, creating music, you know, working on music as a producer, engineer, as a mixer, which is another super, super creative aspect of uh, the music uh, creation process. And I've been doing it for almost 30 years, if not 30. But over the years, I developed many other interests. One of them is wine. Another <laughs> one, uh, technology. You know, I love technology. I love not just gadgets or to create a, a piece of a hardware a, or software a, for a specific use, but the whole ergonomy of things, you know, how it's yeah. going to be used uh, by the end users and even how it's going to be used unexpectedly by yeah. the not so-called pro users, but the incidental users, you know. Your interests, um, but like how I know you is uh, as a music producer and a mixer and an engineer. And um, I remember going out a couple of nights out when I was in Los Angeles with you many years ago. And we had some great stories and we're going to share some of those stories today in this episode. So tell us a little bit more about how you got your break in music production. If you can remember that far back. No, I do remember that far back. I had my first studio experience uh, also incidentally when I was only 15, 16 years old. Uh, I was part of a full recording session in a real professional recording studio back in Spain. And that really, you know, it was an eye-opening experience for me mm. uh, because I never thought the studio could be such a creative um, environment, you know, uh, to basically change your music, not just record your music. Up to that point, I thought that a recording studio was just that, exactly, literally. I was just interpreting what the name said, you know, recording a studio, you record music. And I realized it wasn't just that. It was... a uh, a place where you can create the right environment to create, not specifically record, but you can create, you can, you know, songwrite, you can uh, produce. That's when I, yeah. I, my eyes open to production too. So from that point on, I became super, super interested in that aspect. Yeah. But I had some abilities, you know, with, uh, with the whole recording process and mixing and balancing things. So I used that path in order to, in later years, you know, achieve, you know, uh, my production status, you know, to start, like, really helping artists, you know, achieve their their goal. But you're a musician as well. I remember you, you're yeah. an accomplished guitarist as well. So, yeah, I play guitar, and that was my original dream, to tell you the truth. I yeah. wanted to be an artist. I mean, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that everything started. I wanted to be an artist. But then I discovered production and I discovered engineering and I discovered all of those other aspects. But yeah. initially, I just wanted to be an artist. And for anyone, like I'm going to have to try and do a screen grab because Rafa's studio in Los Angeles is insane. I remember walking into it and the amount of gear in his studio is just, it's breathtaking. It's such a beautiful studio. But, you know, you got your break. We were speaking in, in the early 90s. Was it an Ocean Way Studios in Los Angeles? And when I first, I mean, I remember walking into your studio with a guitar and, you know, they'd be like, hey, play your songs. And, um, you know, I'd researched, but I hadn't researched as much as I probably should have. Like you have worked with everyone in your career, like Michael Jackson, Prince, like you name it. Rafa has, you know, you know, had experience working with that artist. So what I'm really keen to chat about, I guess, is more 
uh, the creative process. So how it's changed from that era of the early 90s to, you know, the mid 2000s and to where we're at now at the moment. As a songwriter myself back in the day, um, you know, what we used to do is we used to, when I had a band, we used, we'd get into a room and we'd jam and we'd create sounds and interesting things. And I actually had a Spanish guitarist as well, like, you know, from the wonderful world of Madrid. And he was equally as crazy as me. And we, we'd come up with some stuff and my God, there's, there's something in that. And we would create, go through that process. And then we would go into a studio and we'd lay it down, as you said, a recording studio. And we didn't really think of the recording studio as an instrument in itself, like, you know, and it wasn't until I guess I got to work with yourself and Cheche that I experienced that, how you could take a sketch and make it into a full, fully formed product, I guess, I suppose it was like an, an artifact. How have you seen the the evolution of, of the creative songwriting process change over the years? I think that it has changed because of technology, because of the existence of the internet, uh, because of the distancing between mm. the different players uh, in, in any project. Mm. By players, I mean it could be anything, songwriters, producers, arrangers. Uh, it used to be that we had to get together to collaborate. And now that's not the case anymore. We can be wherever we want uh, and still collaborate. And the technology to do it is getting better and better. You know, we're getting rid of latency, we have better, you know, uh, tools to do it. Um, AI is going to further change it big time. Yeah. Soon enough, that's going to happen. We're at that point where you believe there's, there's something is, is about to change, um, we, which we're, we're definitely going to get to in, in the conversation. But what, what I'd really like to, if you can hone your mind back to the, the era of, say, when you, when you got to work with Michael Jackson at that point, when he entered into the studio, were songs created at that stage? Were they fully formed things? Or walk me through what, what that was like. Depending on, on the stages of the project, and it happened with many artists back then, uh, some of those projects will take a full year hmm. to be realized. And I'm talking like a full year of six days a week, 12 right. hours a day. I'm not talking like, oh, it took him a year, but then he's only working like three days a month, right? No. It was like, yeah, uh, six days a week for a full year, and depending on the you know where the stage of the project, where were you at? But even the whole pre-production could take months, mm. and the whole recording process uh, for each one of the songs, for each one of the tracks, could take uh, six months or nine months. Wow. Uh, who knows? But it also happened that way because we were allowed to work that way. Mm. Budgets allowed for that. Uh, but it has been proven, you know, not that later on, uh, even after, the, you know, 9-11, when the whole, there was a big shift in the industry in terms of budgets and the time slots that you, you could use, you know, to, to work on a project. You know, what used to take three weeks, it was condensed down to two days. That's the reality. So that only meant that it could be done. It was a mixture of procrastination but also, you know, people will just take the opportunity because you had it in front of you. I mean, mm. I'm not saying that people were lazy. I mean, we work hard, but we took our time. We wouldn't make up our minds on things. We will experiment much more. Yeah. I miss the experimentation aspect of things. I do miss that, that part. But I don't miss um, procrastinating on decisions. That aspect, mm. I actually... I'm glad it's over. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Like the deliberation around a, a snare drum sound and yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, those kind of things. Because when you start procrastinating like that, you stop using your intuition. You work at a different level in terms of your incredible how you use your abilities. Yeah, mm, yeah, you get, you get stuck down into the weeds of a snare drum. I remember. You know, I'm obviously a huge U2 fan. I don't know if you remember that, but I remember reading about where they recorded Where the Streets of No Name and um, Eno. I think they'd spent six months on Where the Streets of No Name, like on that track, because it's got a strange time structure. And at one point, Eno instructed the engineer, the junior engineer, to take the tape and burn it. He was like, just get rid of it. He said, we'll start again. We'll start again. And they didn't do it. They didn't do it. So like, in some ways, it's kind of good. In other ways, it's like, he was like, it's just crazy. We, we were like deliberating over everything, like, you know, snare sounds, yeah. to hats, the symbols, everything, like, you know. But looking back at that, um, that process where you said that there was, there was lots of um, bigger budgets and a lot more time to spend and you were, you were exploring a lot more. Um, you know, what, what were the benefits of that? What were you seeing um, in, in being able to do that exploration process? Well, one of the benefits was the human interaction. You had time to know each other, you know, uh, that's one aspect. Uh, even not just between the uh, specific, you know, band members, if it was a band uh, and the producer, mm-hmm. but even you had time to hone in that relationship within the band. You know, they got to know each other well. They They got to really explore things so they could actually have a conversation at, at a different level. It wasn't just that frugal that, oh, we have an hour just to record these two tracks. It wasn't like that. Uh, there was more time to to debate and to, you know, to talk about their own personal preferences and taste and whatnot. The disadvantage, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes you will kill intuition the intuitive mm. aspect of the process because you know you had so much time to debate things that you start like uh, rationalizing everything every mm. single aspect about it and yeah. me that that was the negative aspect of it but yeah the good things were you know human interaction how it could be honey you know you had more time to yeah to take care of that and experimentation you had yeah. more time to try things and fail it is mm. very important to fail yeah it is essential to fail. Now we have very limited time to fail. I always take it into account, though. I always think when I'm talking about, you know, scheduling a project and people say like, oh, you need two hours for that. You need one hour for that. I always allocate some time for failure. Yeah. Because it is super important to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because it's we're not robots at the end of the day. We can't be, you know, sliced our time sliced up into little slots and say i'm going to do 20 minutes on this piece and 20 minutes on that piece you know we don't work that way and it's the key to success i mean in order to come out with the with an amazing idea sometimes you have to fail on two other yeah absolutely but like the 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 whole kind of design process and the music process for me they're not linear okay it's not a case of like we'll do this and then we do that we'll do this it's very much like exploration and then we kind of refine an exploration and maybe go back a couple of steps and then we'll jump forward a couple of steps and like for me um as a a novice songwriter before i started recording properly it was a case of like i'll just do it and then I've done it and it's the song is done. Whereas I start to learn a lot more around the craft of songwriting, whereas like I change things and I improvise and improvisation was one of the bits that 
I like to think I started to get to that comfort level in, later when I was playing with other bands. But um, improvisation in the studio, I never got to that point where, you know, you, you hear these bands and they were just like, you know, U2 has been a prime example when uh, people are going to really learn a lot more about me in this episode because I'm a huge U2 fan. But when they went to uh, to Berlin to record Octone Baby and they were literally just jamming and playing and playing and playing. It's where a lot of the, the sonic sounds at Edge came out of came out of those sessions in uh, what's the name of the studio where Bowie recorded. But um, I- improvisation in the studio. So w- what experience have you got when you re- reflect back in the early stages of the 90s when you were recording with all those big artists? H- how did improvisation affect the creative process? It's all project dependent because and the style of music, it's a uh, Let's talk about Prince because I know you worked the Prince. Let's talk no, about Prince. I didn't actually no, I didn't actually work with him. I jam actually went to some jam sessions with him in his house. He used to do that, which really shows you know how important and nurturing it was for him in terms of personal growth. You know, he would just invite you know people he didn't even know just based on recommendation. You know, a musician would recommend another musician or another producer, somebody that he knew that you know, uh, was supposed to be a legit kind of, you know, legit yeah. group of people. So he invite these people to his home. Actually, why was he doing that though? There was obviously his method to the madness. There was obviously a reason why Prince was bringing other people. Do you think he was trying to validate or he was trying to get an understanding of what works and how get He was trying to grow personally. He was trying to be influenced by other people. He was trying to, I mean, that's what I took out of the experience. He was trying to rob against other younger musicians, younger people with different ideas, different ways of uh, creating music, different ways of jamming. Yeah. And uh, for him, he wouldn't talk much. He would just stay quiet. He he wouldn't talk to anybody. It it was funny, but he was watching. He was catching up. You know, he was just getting into somebody else's riff. He would play the drums. He would play the guitar. Uh, It only shows you that Everybody needs that kind of uh, interaction, that kind of growth, no matter how big they are. Yeah. No matter how big they are, you know, it's a never ending learning process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Going back to that, in the 90s, and you said there was bigger budgets, so there was probably a little bit more um, leniency in terms of not having an album that was a straight success that was going to deliver you know, top 10 hits and all that kind of stuff. Can you remember how singles were determined out of albums back then? Like, how, how did they select and say, okay, we've got three singles in this. Were, you know, were, were they doing it back then? How, how were they doing it as well? Oh, it was it was done, obviously, the same as it is done today, but with a different level of importance, but uh, or priority, let's say, not importance, but priority. Uh, but because now uh, people are just releasing singles, period, right? <laughs> they are not even recording albums once in a while. It doesn't even come up to that. But back then, the process was very different because you will do it towards the end of the process or when we, you will be like very, very advanced in the recording production process and then you will pick the singles. Okay. So they let the let them form and then they... they, they... Form. So uh, some of those singles will reveal themselves. So it was yeah. a much easier process, you know? Yeah. Uh, to work to work out yeah and have you seen that shift like in terms of in in the present day i've yeah i've seen the shift because now it's just the there's a different level of expectation you don't get into the studio unless you know that song is going to be the single 
<laughs> so really? it's, it's the other way around. With many new novel artists, uh, that's the case. Uh, you work on two songs and either one or both need to be the singles, period. So in a way, it can be a little bit disappointing sometimes because it doesn't allow for growth. It doesn't allow for development mm. during the process. I mean, you are stuck with what you got from the get-go. Yeah. From the get-go, you need to make it happen. That's why very often these days we go in circles with the same song or the same songs, trying to make them, trying to overcome whichever obstacles we might have, Mm. make them appear to be singers, even if they are not. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know Rick Beato, the music producer? He's a YouTuber anyway. He has a, a great video of this Nashville songwriting process where... I think it was 20 of the last in the last two years, they all used the same four chords. I mean, exactly the same four chords. And they all sound exactly the same. When he splices them together, you couldn't tell them because we're, we're just at that point of like... Regurgitating. Regurgitating the same stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, yeah, that sounds good. That made us money. Let's keep going. And there's been very little innovation in music for that reason in itself. Like, you know... You touched on something there when the artists came into the studio um, and like they know that that's going to be the single. So around the early 2000s, I remember um, whenever uh, Apple bought, uh, was it E-Magic? Uh, the, and it became Garage Band. And I remember I was chatting to you around when John Mayer, actually Steve Jobs brought John Mayer out with Garage Band and was like, hey, this is what you can do with Garage Band. And it changed my perception. And I was like, oh, maybe it's not a kid's toy anymore. Maybe it's actually, you could use this in the studio. So around that time, what, what kind of shift were you seeing? Like te- That was kind of where technology started to sort of introduce itself to the, to the studio and the producers, I guess. Like they were like, hey, you know, we've got some gear at home. How did that change the process for you? It changed it a lot. It really changed it a lot because it allowed for artists to actually put down their own ideas uh, on their own. And be yeah. confident about it. Have tools that were like uh, simple enough so that you could do it. Basically, GarageBand was an, uh, a downsized version of Logic, right? Mm. And Logic, uh, even though it can be a, quite intuitive, uh, it was a very complex, very deep program. So most artists, uh, most people without any previous uh, technical you know, skills, we're very intimidated by those tools. So they wouldn't use them. So I think that programs like GarageBand, programs like Reason, mm. all of these change the whole game because it allows artists to do things on their own. Not only that, they started doing things differently in mm. a different kind of way. Like instead of following the usual steps, step one, you do this, you create the base. Step two, you do this. Like They start like turning, turning the whole thing around. And mm. not actually working on the beat until they got you know the flow of the song or something else. So it even changed songwriting for yeah. the artist. The Absolutely. songwriting process changed completely. You yeah. will actually create something based on a beat, but later on you will change the beat. Uh, yeah. It only allow you to have like a rhythmic structure, but nothing else. It wasn't really the backbone of the, your song. It was just like a placeholder for you in order to get inspired yeah you know and write something so it really changed at, at, you know at a mental level i mean in terms of how people understood the process inside mm. their heads 
what what was the conversation like in the industry at that stage when you know amongst your peers they were like have you seen carriage band have you seen reason like was it intimidation or was, was it received with uh, warmth and acceptance i really accepted it i thought like wow this is i can actually use this to my advantage i can actually even nurture some of my artists to use it and Hmm. and facilitate the creative process, you know, and ideas and whatnot. But other people were intimidated because they thought they were just toys and they were just a distraction. Mm -hmm. I never saw it that way. It would have changed the business models as well because you would have been able to leave a studio with a piece that you could take home and iterate and use it and change it at home and come back into the studio. So the the booking rates in the studios would have been affected because you could only play and use the stuff within that environment is that right yeah some people were intimidated because of that basically you know they they saw that it was going to be like an it could signify an economic loss to them you know by not being in absolute control of the process you know like okay Mm -hmm. you come to the studio you do everything in the studio under my own terms you know that kind of that kind of attitude some people felt intimidated by that aspect you know that's why they actually try to portray it as a distraction, kind of like, well, it's a die. Nothing good is going to come out of that. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not professional. Yeah. You know, I always laugh about that concept of how you label things to be professional or amateur, you know, or semi-pro, all of those. I never think in those terms. And even back then, I never thought in those terms, even though I'm, I'm, very, I'm re- really driven by technology and the kind of skills I acquire over the years and some people try to defend that that's not the main key to creation yeah it's not the main key to creation yeah it's funny you say that because when I was in Sydney I was recording my album back in was it 08 or 09 in around that era I can't even remember anymore I'm, I'm getting old um and I thought Logic was a baby version of Pro Tools it was marketed as being very like you know, childlike and Chris Faleo, who owns a great studio in Sydney called Linear Studios, was recording Empire of the Suns, um, Walking on a Dream. I don't know if it was a big hit in, in America, but it was a huge hit in Australia. And he played some of the, the, the tracks to me. And I was like, you're using Logic? And he's like, yeah, and they're using Logic. And I'm like, oh, no way. I was like, I can get that. And I don't have any all this, you know, these problems with my, my Pro Tools and my Mac. And I was like, yeah. And I switched like that. It was it was literally that because I my, my perception, my model of how I thought of the program was fit for purpose. And it just opened up all these these rooms to like sounds that I was like, oh, you know what I mean? It's amazing. Like, and it just changed how I wrote music from then on. Logic. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one question I wanted to ask you. So back then at that time, when, when we got to work together, your role as a producer, I remember you saying to me, um, and it was it was probably I wasn't mature enough to understand it. You know, your role as a producer was to make the environment um, ready for the artist to work. And um, now as a service designer, and I, I do a lot of workshop facilitation, I completely get that. I make the space open and safe um, for these ideas to emerge. Um, and, you know, I guess looking back on that, how have you seen that the role of producer um, evolve and how do you maintain that level of importance? Because it's such a critical thing for production of anything to make sure that there's a safe space to try and fail. And if if technology is, you know, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic and you're using Skype and Zoom and all these kind of different technologies to try and connect. 
how do you get around that? I think that you have to always, you know, keep in mind what the ultimate goal is, number one. Hmm. You need to always have an eye on the goal, on the ultimate goal, you know, of, of, of the effort that you're going through. But without forgetting any point during the process that everything is important. Everything is important. Mm. That's the problem I'm having with some people that uh, that you can only learn through experience, obviously, you know, mm. to give the right importance to even some of the little details that other people might just disregard, right? You have to be connected to the process. You have to be connected to the people you are working with. Empathy is just so important, so important to, you know, to truly understand what they are going through. Uh, and then you can spot right away what's going to work and what's not going to work. Mm. And people even doubt you sometimes. They go like, are you sure? Like, But it's clear to you because you have gone through those experiences so many times. You connect with that person. You have the empathy to know yeah. Sort of like interpret what's going through their head, and then you know what what's going to be the best move from that yeah. point. So it's an ever changing process. It's not mm. static. That's what people need to understand. It's not static. It can change every five minutes or every second. You know. Yeah. So and I'm going through that right now. Actually, with two of the artists I'm I'm producing, uh, things are changing emotionally for them. Mm. But you have to. Even through the distance, you have to be connected. You have to use whatever tools you have. You mentioned, you know, Zoom, Skype, whatever tools you might have, you have to be able to connect. To connect. Yeah. So do you create time to pick up the phone and speak to them and Absolutely. learn? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. To learn what they're going through, do you know, uh, to learn, never assume anything. Do you know, uh, we might have worked on some songs and approve on some moves like, Five months ago, maybe that doesn't stand anymore. Yeah, that's not the case anymore. You have to stay connected. Does it take longer to to create now, or have you seen it's, technology has been a, an enabler for speed? I think it's an enabler for speed, and uh, and even not just the internet technology, but the basic you know speed of the systems now. You know, technology itself, you know, by itself, even old technology, you know, now it's uh, more efficient. We can jump from one idea to another, like efficiently, like quickly. Uh, we can open several projects at the same time. It's not like it, we yeah. used to have to wait. Not anymore. I mean, things move fast. We can collaborate super fast too through so many internet tools, even full sessions, you know. Even, yeah. the, even the fact of the speed of the internet, of the uploads, yeah. downloads, everything helps. Everything has... Uh, yeah, look, I, I totally agree. I, I can see all that kind of stuff. But what have we lost in, in all the speed. You mentioned the human aspect. The human, the, aspect the human interaction. So we have to be very, very careful to um, to dedicate enough time to still have you know that aspect uh, always on the table for every project we work on. That's why I still love to and want to meet people, you know, even in five minutes of looking to each other eye to eye, you can solve more issues than yeah, you know, interacting. You know, same thing when you are mixing. For example, you are you can go back and forth sending your mix, uh, your MP3s or WAV files, you know, over the internet. They listen to it. They get back to you, mm. and you can spend days, weeks, you know, fine tuning a mix, doing little changes. But if you connect live with them and they actually can go through the experience with you, 
there is a different level of reassurance and a mm. different level of exploration, even in the fine details that yeah. you can never do any other ways because you open the door to everybody second guessing about the possibilities. You know, you have something that you love, but you are still second guessing mm. what the possibilities might be if we do this other thing or if you, we do that. And sometimes you don't even need to do it, but you need to talk about it. Yeah. That's enough to create that reassurance and actually create direction. We always have to be very, very careful that no matter what we do, we need to create, we need to create direction. We need to make our choices. Every, mm. every moment of the process, we have to make our choices. We cannot procrastinate them forever. Yeah. That's not creation. I mean, that's a very absurd way and a very difficult way to create. And I've been on that process too. I've been on that on that yeah. road in the past. And I, I'll rather do it the other way. Yeah. So when when you're creating, like you um you create different versions of the the track, is it? And you send it back to the artist for is this kind of what you're looking for? And what's the involvement then, I guess, with the the record label to ensure that you know that they're they're going in the right direction? That's another important aspect. You know, we don't just do it uh, for the artist. Uh, we're the we're the middle person between everybody involved. And yeah. Everybody involved is the record label, even the management, because these days, all of the you know recording projects are actually being executive produced by management companies, not just record labels, but right. management companies under the supervision of the record label, but. They're actually being executed by uh, managers. And mm. So there are many players on the equation. There is you as the producer. Then there is the record label. Obviously, the most important is the artist. Everything starts with the artist. But then underneath it, there is the record label, the management, and then you as the producer. And it's your responsibility to coordinate the full effort. The requests. Because you are the one executing anyway. Mm. So you cannot depend on other people giving you just vague ideas. You have to actually decipher through all everybody's ideas and try to come to compromises. Yeah. There's always some level of compromise here and there. It has yeah. to do even with the silly aspects of things. You know, like you you create a song with the artist or you help him create a song and it runs for four minutes and 50 seconds and then the label needs it to be three and a half minutes you know the, i mean even even in the little little you mm. like oh that's that's a minor aspect well it's not a minor detail for the artist he put all of that effort to create that song the way it is mm. so you, you become a little person how are they doing that how are they um one cutting through all that stuff to make sure that what the final product is going to be a hit. How are they validating that? What, what things are they doing to make sure that when, I know you worked at Lady Gaga on that, on that big album that my wife still plays that I try to drown out with my U2 albums. But um, <laughs> I like all the music apart from U2, but it's a bit of a joke now in this episode, so I'll continue it. But, um, you know, how do they make sure that like, okay this is going to be a hit because you hear them like like when i wrote it i knew it was a hit i'm like did you like how how do they know 
Uh, not everybody knows that. I mean, they claim that after the fact. It's very, yeah. it's very simple to to make those claims after the fact, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you don't hear about the ones that uh, put a lot of effort on it, and then it never became a success. You never, talk, you never hear them talking about it, like going like, "Oh yeah, when I wrote this, I knew it wasn't gonna be a hit," <laughs> right? Yeah. That's not yeah. a story. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we only hear about the success stories, and obviously, after the fact, it's very, very simple to to talk about it in the terms. But you know, it's patterns. Uh, it's all about patterns. One pattern is uh, creating something that's recognizable, something that's familiar, uh, that mm. you know uh, feels familiar to you, even though it's something new, but feels familiar to it. That's one of the patterns that executive producers, record labels, A and R people. And and some artists, you know, as uh, as songwriters, recognize as the you know as a great element, you yeah. know, rap into you know, um, but other than that, was the formula for success. And also keep in mind that many of the successes happen because of the big marketing effort put mm-hmm. behind them. If those yeah. songs were only played ten times a week on radio. They will have never become a success, but yeah. they are they are being played two thousand times a week on radio. Well, there is something to it too. Yeah, so they they're being paid to play them as well. So it's like there's a huge marketing budget from the labels behind to to push them and make them a success. But do do you know do they do things like listening parties to to validate? They do those things as well, like so. Oh, yeah, we have always done that. We have always done that. That was always part of the process. Even bringing the whole marketing team, you know, to to a listening session, uh, mm. and doing blind listening sessions, you know, without anybody commenting on any of the songs, and then having one even with the artist or with the producer explaining what those specific songs and moments mean, you know, yeah. and trying to to make it a more meaningful, you know, listening experience, and then you have. Sometimes you get two completely different answers, even from the same people. So mm. both are equally important. I think that, yeah. and I do, I go through the same process. Very often when I work with an artist, I tell them first, just send me the songs. Don't yeah. tell me anything about them. I'll listen to them. I make my own notes. I come to my own conclusions. Then next step, let's meet up. Uh, yeah. Let's listen again. But you tell me about your songs. You tell yeah. me about your meaning, you know, the, what they mean to you. Uh, yeah, then, I remember this. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then you grasp a different aspect of the song, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. It's yeah, it's an important aspect. Now, look, I know we're conscious of time, and you know you're very busy these days. Um, but you mentioned there something around the role of AI, and now we're at this point in time where we we think. You know, we've mentioned about the evolution of technology and how GarageBand and, you know, MySpace and the you know, the iPod and all that kind of stuff in the mid-2000s had a huge effect. But now we're at this point, we're mid-pandemic, or uh, hopefully mid-pandemic, we could be at the start of the pandemic, who knows? But where are we at and how do you think technology is going to change the next, say, two to five years? What are your predictions? I think that um, technology is going to, further assist in every step of the process, especially mm. songwriting, even songwriting. How? No, no, tell us. Tell us. But songwriting, I think that uh, that pattern recognition I was talking about, but mm. when you link, link that pattern oh, yeah. to your subject, you know, it's like AI can actually 
gather the data from whatever information you feed it, right? It can be at a micro level, it's more demographic or oh, localized demographic, or it can be as a you know pan out perspective of the world, of taste, cultural aspects, yeah. many things. But when you actually have two different projections and you can actually come up with a compromised pattern, that's when he is going to be able to assist the user. Yeah. You know, you as a, as a user are not just going to go for the generic pattern that everybody, you know, is mm. after, but it's a mix of the generic pattern and your own personal, you know, taste, your own personal, yeah. basically. I think that's where AI is going to become really interesting. And it's not just going to be about a musical taste. Music is not just music. Uh, music is everything. Even your, I'm going to say something crazy, but even your political preference is important. I don't know. Everything mm. everything comes into play in the way uh, you write your songs. And I'm not, not just talking about the lyrics. I mean, it influences every single aspect of what you do, how you conduct your life, how you even brush your teeth. I don't know. E- e- everything interplays. So I think that's that's where AI, over time, is going to become a super personalized yeah. assistant. You could have, imagine the API coming out of Spotify and being able to you know, cross-reference that with the Facebook API and saying, well, 12 to 14-year-old people in France, like this is the kind of most popular music and this is the most popular groove and you're you're creating a music for that demographic and that target audience, you know, you could create something like that. So you could use it as a research tool. But yeah, what's really interesting is what you mentioned there around is almost like an instrument and you know how it can how it can actually improve that process. That's where it's scary. And and if you could even calibrate, do you know the AI? You could tell the AI what level of influence you need. <laughs> you yeah. know, what percentage of influence uh, you need in the creation process, you know? Yeah, dial it up, dial it down. Uh, at this level, you know, you create like a threshold of... <laughs> <laughs> like autopilot. Oh, Rafa's not in the studio today. Turn it up to 100%. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it is kind of crazy um, to think that we, we could be at that point where AI could could almost create create some sort of music for us. Because you, have you seen that Nirvana track that went out recently where... They let AI create a, a Nirvana track based on In Utero and Nevermind. Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. Somebody mentioned I haven't seen it myself. I'll, I'll throw a link in the show notes for this. Somebody it, mentioned it to me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I listened to it. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be this is gonna be rubbish. And then I was like, it's kind of cool. <laughs> it's actually, it sounds like a Nirvana song, but all the lyrics are kind of muddled together from their hits. But uh, it's it's interesting. Like, Rafa... I could, you know, I have spoken to you for for hours and days, but if people want to reach out to you, um, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you and, and stay stay in touch with what, what you're doing? I think my website, you know, uh, yeah, rafasardina.com. Sardina.com, yeah, that's the easiest way. Yeah. And you are on Instagram, you know, you, you are yeah. a bit of a prolific Instagrammer. You've got your, you know, hands full. You, you're going to be busy 2020. So, um, anyone interested in music production and uh, in that space, Rafa is, is always giving great online uh, webinars as well. So, I've seen some of their stuff. I think I attended one of them actually. <laughs> <laughs> All those difficult questions that came from Ireland were from me. <laughs> 
so Rafa thanks so much for your time it was great speaking with you thank you thank you it was really really great <laughs> talking to you so there you have it that's all for this episode of bringing design closer if you like this episode feel free to visit thisis8cd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design product management design research and much much more if you're interested in design and innovation training feel free to check out our business thisisdoing.com where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders join the this is 8cd newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network and also if you're interested apply to join the slack community on thisis8cd.com stay safe and until next time take care